The following Teisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayet, was recorded at Dai Bosatsu Zendo Kangoji in the Catskill Mountains. This recording is part of a series on the Mumukan, the Gateless Gate Koan Collection. They are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zenstudies.org or www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Mumon Khan, Case 11. Joshu Examines the Hermits. Joshu went to a hermit's hut and asked, Is the master in? Is the master in? The hermit thrust up his fist. Joshu said, The water is too shallow to anchor here. And he went away. Coming to another hermit's hut, he asked again, Is the master in? Is the master in? This hermit, too, thrust up his fist. Joshu said, Free to give, free to take, free to kill, free to save. And he made a deep bow. Mumon's comment. Each hermit thrust up his fist in the same way. Why was one accepted and the other rejected? Tell me, what is the difficulty here? If you can give a turning word, then you will see that Joshu's tongue has no bone. Now he raises up. Now he knocks down in perfect freedom. But although this is so, it is also true that Joshu himself has been seen through by the two hermits. If you say there is a distinction to be made between the two hermits, you have no eye of realization. And if you say there is no distinction to be made, you have no eye of realization. Mumon's verse. An eye like a shooting star, a spirit like lightning, a death-dealing blade, a life-giving sword. Joshu Jushin, we all know well. He appears three times in the first 11 cases of the Mumon Khan. Of course, case one, Joshu's Mo. And Joshu's wash your bowls. And this one with the hermits. Joshu was probably in his 60s or 70s when he visited these hermits. It was most likely during his time of pilgrimage after the death of his teacher, Nansen, with whom he 
studied and met with intimately for 40 years. He spent three years in deep seclusion before leaving Nansen's place, honoring his late master. And then began this pilgrimage. Very difficult traveling on foot through the mountains of China. It was a time of religious persecution, persecution of Buddhism, a dangerous traveling, and of course being tested by the elements and never knowing when he might eat. And wherever he found some Zen master in a remote temple or a hermit, testing, challenging, and being challenged. And now and again, finding some spiritual rapport. This period of testing one's understanding has always been a very important part of our maturation as Zen students. After being approved by one's teacher, after receiving transmission, it's time to be out of the limelight. Time to work deeply and quietly. If not pilgrimaging, then perhaps visiting this place and that. Or finding a small hut in the mountains. And this is the traditional way before setting up one's own place to test and to grow deeper. And this was the custom from early days of Chan, Chinese Zen, and continues more or less or should anyway. There were many hermit monks in Joshi's time and the majority of them were seasoned practitioners. We thought, when I say we, I think I mean most Westerners thought that that tradition had died out in China after the cultural revolution and persecution of Buddhism and other religions of our era. But then a book came out by Bill Porter, Red Pine, called Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. How many of you have read that? It's worth reading. And a filmmaker named Edward Berger a few years ago read it and decided he would make a film about these hermits. Imagine, Zhou Shu visits the hermits, ninth century China, asking, is the master in? And seeing fist and making his retort and leaving. Very different for this guy, Ed Berger, in 21st century China, coming with film equipment. And yet, not so different. Political situation still not so supportive of Buddhism. Getting around in those mountains, not much easier. And going up with a small crew and all that equipment, 
narrow, steep trails, no tour bus, no tour guide, no map. The result was quite wonderful. The film is called Amongst White Clouds. So those of you who didn't read the book, have you seen the film? Ah, a treat awaits you. These interviews with contemporary hermits living in isolated huts in the high peaks of the Zhongyan mountain range, mountains that have been the home to recluses since the time of the Yellow Emperor, which is maybe 5,000 years ago. So Berger not only wanted to document these hermits' lives, he really wanted to learn from them and put out a film that would bring their understanding to us. And in fact, one of the hermits became his teacher for a number of years. So in the film, the hermits are interviewed and one asks, why are people in this world so busy? Busy a whole lifetime for me. Capital, me. Why not put all that energy to liberation? And another hermit, he asked, why did you come to these mountains? And the hermit replied, I'd like to know myself. Why did you come? And another one said, you live alone in a hut. You feel so lonely, really, so very lonely. But after a long time, you don't want to go down off the mountain. You feel the cities are just a lot of trouble. I think some of us feel that way when we've been here at session. We don't want to go down off the mountain, back to all that trouble. And another hermit said the big difference being a hermit from being in a monastery is the lack of structure. He said, every morning and every evening I do my service, then I do some sitting, and in the afternoon I read a bit. I'm very free. Soen Roshi wrote a poem in May of 1938, probably on a day very much like this one. Looking for serenity, you have come to the monastery. Looking for serenity, I am leaving the monastery. <laughs> Stop running about seeking the dusty affairs of the world fill the day, fill the night. That same summer, Soen Roshi was in Manchuria with Genpo Roshi, and he wrote in his journal, Deep at night, I had a dip in a hot spring surrounded by the vast plains. I looked up at the constellations. The stars were dancing in the field of the sky. I was totally absorbed in this matter and vowed to settle in a hut on Mount Daibosatsu. And then he wrote this haiku. Distant thunder, 
various races naked in the stone tub. And as most of you know, as a young monk, Soen Roshi frequently would take off from the monastery. First, when he was at Kogakuji, and later at Utakaji, and lived indeed in a tiny hut on Mount Garbasatsu, facing Mount Fuji. In 2007, Jikyo and I and several others visited Kogakuji and heard the abbot there tell us about what it was like when Soen Roshi was a monk. The temple was so poor, there was no way that the monks could even get new robes when their tattered robes fell apart. There was often no food. And he said, one of the reasons Soen Roshi often would go off and live on Mount Daibasatsu was there he could eat nuts and berries and he wouldn't be taking away the food from the other monks' mouths. We stayed at a small yokan and heard memories of elderly villagers, including the man who had constructed the yokan, of Son as a young monk walking barefoot the 12 miles up to his hut on Mount Dagasatsu. And they said everyone would line the streets with their palms together and gasho, so moved by the sincerity of this extraordinary young monk. So that visit to Kogakuji, our small group, made a journey to Daibasatsu Mountain, to the hut where Soen Roshi spent so much time. Three Treasures Hut, a little sign set there. So we climbed Daibusatsu Mountain and lit incense and chanted. And the weather was not so great. Miyamoto Roshi, Kogakuji's abbot, had told us, better leave right away this morning because a storm may be coming in. So we got up there and every now and then the clouds would part a little bit as if Soen Roshi was saying, come on up, come on up. And we climbed and we climbed and after offering incense at the hut, we couldn't see Mount Fuji, but we could feel the mountain's presence very strongly, closing in its presence, very, very tangible among the clouds that were drifting through where we were climbing. So we decided, let's go up a little higher. So we climbed and we climbed almost up to the very top. And then we heard Son Roshi's voice. Distant thunder. And then we heard a cell phone ringing. <laughs> Believe it or not, in the midst of this wilderness cell reception, it was Miyamoto Roshi calling our hostess, saying, Get them down! So immediately we turned around and we started to go down the trail. It started to rain. And then, more thunder, rain harder, lightning striking all around us, pouring rain, 
Suddenly, no more path, just torrents of mud, and then hail, huge hailstones pounding down on us. Hello, Sol and Roshi. Thank you for your greeting. Yogin Senzaki really resonated with Son Roshi's unpretentious and pure way as a monk. And they really felt in each other the integrity that they found lacking in much of the Buddhist establishment the resolve in case 22 of the Mumonkan Senzaki quoted a New Year's poem that he had written Uh, it goes like this. 100,000 bonzes of Japan are intoxicated with sake on this New Year's Day. Alone, Brother Soen is sober. Nothing is able to tempt him. I light a lamp on my windowsill and pine for him from this side of the ocean. He must be very happy when the plum blossoms herald the coming of spring. And then he added, this monk is my discovery, being of the same name by pronunciation as my teacher, Soin Shaku, but written differently in Chinese characters. He is in Mishima, Japan these days. His full name is Soin Nakagawa. He will come to America in the future, gather the old assembly around him, and tear Kashyapa's preaching sign into rags. Wonderful prediction. Senzaki's Shitsugo or room name was Choroan, Morning Dew Hut, Morning Dew Choro. We receive Shitsugo or room name after this uh, period of maturation following transmission. Genpo Roshi's name was Hanyakutsu, Wisdom Cave. Son Roshi's Mitakutsu, Cave of the Paramitas. Eiro Roshi's Muishitsu True Person Without Rank Room. And he gave me Shingeishitsu, which means Heart Flowering Room. Senzaki had no, no one to give him this kind of name. And Itaroshi said that probably he gave Choroan to himself, feeling how well morning dew hut expressed his mind, his heart. And of course called himself a mushroom monk no roots, no branches. Yogan Senzaki translates this case as having only one hermit with two visits. And he opens his commentary with a homage to hermit life. He says, Bodhisattvas, Zen monks, as a rule, decline to make compromises with worldly life, preferring to remain in seclusion. 
The monk in this koan had no wish to become a teacher and waste precious moments of meditation. So many precious moments we waste. He lived alone in a little hut known to nobody. To him, every hour in the day and every minute in the night were for nothing but meditation. He sat and walked in meditation. He ate and slept in meditation. He thus preached without words and taught all sentient beings without exception. And then he goes on, a monastery may be formed any time a group of Zen students gather around a teacher. It is like a, a bay that connects with the great ocean. If anyone foolishly makes a demarcation, thinking that he alone has a view of the water, who would not pity him for his ignorance? Yet there are many monasteries, schools, religions, and sects, each considering its own teaching to be a private lake rather than a bay, forgetting the inlet to the ocean of Dharma, the universal truth. Joshu therefore said, Ships cannot anchor where the water is too shallow. But the mind of this monk was no puddle, no matter what Joshu said. Its waters may have appeared to be merely rippling, yet every wavelet echoed the surges of the great ocean. A few days later, Joshu went again to visit the monk and asked the same question. The monk answered the same way. He raised his fist. Even if the Buddha confronted him, this monk would have raised his fist. If Bodhidharma visited him 100 times, the monk would do the same each time. He would not be copying the conventional manner of Zen teachers but would simply be creating his own Zen from the essence of mind. To each question, he would be giving a fresh and original answer without hesitating. He is the creator. He is the master. To this, Joshu gave recognition, bowing and saying, he can give, he can take. He can kill. He can save. So these two hermits, are they two? Or are they one? Let's examine with Joshu. He goes to a hermit and asks, Is the master in? I see me. It's a tiny hut. The guy's right there. You can see. At a glance, he's in. What's he asking? True person in him here or you elsewhere. Is the one who can manifest the vitality of Zen here? immediately thrusts his fist. What is this? What is this? Immediate, dynamic, masters in. No words. 
no explanation. Edward Berger wouldn't have had much dialogue for his film, this hermit. Maybe a fist would have appeared in the camera. And that's all. You remember Gute, case three of the Mumon Khan, asked about Zen. What did he do? Right? No matter who asked, same response. Raised his finger. And at the end of his life, he said, I received this one finger Zen from old Tenyu, and I have never exhausted it. Two different teachers, same finger, inexhaustible. Two hermits, or one hermit saying, two visits. Same fist. So, this first round, Joshu replies, the water is too shallow to anchor here. And he goes away and goes to another hermit or makes a second visit to the same hermit. Doesn't matter. The point is, Understand this one fist, these two occasions. Second hermit, Joshu asks, same question. Master in? Hermit, same response. saying, show me your Zen hermit. <laughs> Mirroring each other. And yet, this time, Joshu says, free to give, free to take, free to kill, free to save. It makes a deep bow. One of my favorite things of Joshu, who had so many amazing ways of expressing his profundity. There is really no more wonderful expression, I think, uh, to, to really show the freedom of being entirely at home in one's body and entirely at home in one's mind, entirely at home in one's life, master of circumstances, whatever they may be, responding appropriately, teaching effortlessly, free to give, free to take, free to kill, to say letting go this kind of giving a toehold to encourage the student free and holding fast depriving the student of any dependency killing delusions saving all beings, indeed, a deep bow. However, I think usually people hear this story of Joshu's very different responses to the same gesture and think, oh, that first hermit, what?
Joshi says, the water is too shallow to anchor here. What about that first hermit? What do you think? Don't be so polite. Don't be so timid. What the hell do you think? Was he approving of the first hermit or not? Too shallow to anchor here and went away. Uh, probably not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we may really think, oh, that first hermit is no good. Joshi must have thought, oh, he's bad. I'm not going to stick around. He goes to the second hermit. Same gesture. This time he says, all oh, this beautiful, wonderful, free. Right? What do you think? How's he feel about this for me? Must be a good guy. Yeah. So this is very typical when we read this or hear this. We think, oh, he must be putting down the first hermit. He must be admiring the second hermit. You know, there's always this lurking dualism in our minds. What happens when we're scolded? Or you go to Doksan, not yet. Work more, tinglingling. What do we think? Oh, good, right? Oh, yeah, 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 good. No, probably not. Maybe some of you think, oh, really, this is terrific. Okay, back to the cushion, fervor. But some people may perhaps interpret that as I'm no good, right? We tend to take things personally. Ada Roshi always said after shouting at someone, why are you walking around cringing all day? Don't take it personally. But we do. Why? We have some fantasy of how we should be, right? We go around lost in this fantasy, thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. Instead of seeing what is, just letting it go, because it's already gone. Always trying to make it better. Always trying to make ourselves be better than we are. That's a losing proposition. When what we are, sleepy right now, feeling pain, feeling irritable, feeling resistant, Wishing, I wish she would shut up. Yet, it cannot be better. Why? What can be better than this? It's exactly as it is. How can we make this moment better? I'm sure you all have ideas, but I don't want to hear them. <laughs> and it's always changing, right? Even as we identify it as something, it's gone. We really see this in our zazen, right? We have some wonderful oh, sitting. Ah, oh, this is delicious. The minute we say that. Return to me. Return to one. And conversely, although this is harder to accept, the moment that we have identified as pure misery has also 
already moved on. We just are stuck in what is now the last moment. So this is important to realize and remember, right? Someone who was feeling crushing weight of sorrow, feeling truly nothing works. All through the first part of this session, sorry to be here, just immersed in difficulty, in pain, and then became aware of someone else's tears. I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. This is so precious, this crack in the shell. Realizing, oh, someone else. Someone else is also so sad. And then, second day, went outside after lunch and noticed that the residents were busy working while the session guests or participants were resting. Oh, of course, realizing there's so much maintaining to do in this place and caring for this place so that people who are struggling with their burdens can come here and feel some wonderful change. Feel uplifted. And a new feeling took over from that miserable, sad feeling. What was it? This is quintessential. Zen practice. I'm sure that all of us from time to time have been feeling this way. The bubble of our own loneliness, our anxiety, our money troubles, our family worries, illness, and they feel, why? Why is this happening? Why am I suffering? And maybe feeling unequal to the task. Inferior. Like that first hermit. But compared to what? And we're always making comparisons. And this is what keeps us stuck in our misery. This koan really brings it home. Because we look at it and we think, oh, Joshu is saying a disparaging thing to this hermit and admiring the other one. And it calls up some immediate and predictable reaction in our own hearts our own predilection for blaming, especially blaming ourselves. We blame others because we feel this pain inside. We keep framing everything in terms of good and bad, right and wrong, and we're trapped in our personal narratives. What if we see... Joshu's responses to these two hermits as his own fist. Really, we don't know a thing about the hermits. We don't know anything about their individual karma. Are they inherently good? 
inherently bad? What then may Joshu say one thing to one and another to the other? It's irrelevant. What is relevant? Zen Chi. Awakened spirit. We might understand this from another perspective if we take the example of Mu. Right? When you are doing Mu on the cushion, very deep, silent, and in morning service, shouting Mu, song of metal, shouting and each person's voice completely unique, yet Mu. Or Dogen's beautiful image of the full moon reflected in the water. This metaphor for enlightenment. The full moon shines in a puddle just as magnificently as it does in a lake. In a polluted river, just as in the ocean. Joshua is looking this way at these hermits. Simply notes, shallow pond here, deep ocean there, can't anchor here, can there, and bows. His teaching. Their essential Zen expression, one. Is anything inherently deep or shallow, good or bad? And at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't fall into some kind of new-agey, oh, everything is everything. must have the ability to see what's what and respond accordingly. How rare the discernment of Joshu. Without such discernment, we cannot point out in a dispassionate way when the water is shallow or observe profundity with a bow. If we don't have that discernment, we miss profundity as it is revealed right here, right now. You get admired in mud puddles of our own making. Of course, it's important to see our own faults. But we don't have to make them into an identity. I am a person who blah, blah, blah. Keeps us from realizing this freedom. We may have some deep-seated, unresolved issues within ourselves. And that 
is why we see those same faults in another and become fixated on another's faults with blindness toward our own. If we fall into this, we can become quite arrogant, always pointing the finger of blame at another over and over. When in reality, we need to sit down shut up look within wielding our own death-dealing sword life-giving sword Mumon's comment each hermit thrust up his fist in the same way Why was one accepted and the other rejected? Tell me, what's the difficulty here? Difficulty is our own dualistic minds. Joshua was not making comparisons. Just responding to the situation, giving his teaching impartially to each according to his insight according to their insight. Yogan Senzaki says, the monk's fist is like a big tree. It is rooted in the good earth and boldly aspires to heaven. It is not a part of the monk's body. All monks and all Zen teachers, including Joshu, are present in this fist. They lecture from within it, and no matter how they praise or slander it, it is the source of all their strength. Mumon then says, if you can give a turning word, a vital, alive, expression of your own, then you will see that Joshu's tongue has no bone. Now he raises up, now he knocks down in perfect freedom. No bone, nothing rigid in his ability to respond freely, here with a fling of a sleeve, there with a bow. Approving or disapproving without getting stuck, without getting fixated. Here, harsh, there, admiring, both teaching, neither forming any inherent belief or category, personality, identity. We all so badly want this perfect freedom where there's no second guessing, where there's no worrying about the outcome. Oh, will they like it or not? No worry about whether we'll have approval or not. The expression, others are used by the 24 hours. I use the 24 hours is another way of putting this. Then Mumon says, but although this is so, it is also true that Joshu himself has been seen through by the two hermits. Indeed, mirroring each other. Hermit hears Joshu's. Is the master in? And sees his intention. Responds immediately from his own master. Then Mumon 
If you say there is a distinction to be made between the two hermits, you have no eye of realization. And if you say there is no distinction to be made, you have no eye of realization. Fundamentally, there is no distinction. And yet, if you don't understand the principle here of sameness and differentiation, you're lost in the darkness of ignorance. We need discernment to know whether the water is shallow or deep, whether it's cool or warm. We need our own experience, our own awakened mind. No one can give it to us. Rinzai said, this discerning eye was not with me when I was born from my mother. Rather, after extreme discipline and ceaseless investigation, one day, all of a sudden, I could clearly see who I am. Isn't that what we're doing here? Extreme discipline. Ceaseless investigation. Zeta Roshi loves to say with the readiness of time it bursts forth springs up thrusts out Uman's verse An eye like a shooting star, a spirit like lightning, a death-dealing blade, a life-giving sword. This eye like a shooting star, Joshua's eye of discernment, brilliantly shooting through the vast emptiness. And his activity flashing and then gone. The hermit's activity thrusting up. A death-dealing blade, a life-giving sword. Joshu's blade cuts to the bone cuts two into one. Die so that you may be reborn. This is third day of Nyogen Senzaki session. Getting into the groove of it. Creating new pathways in the brain each time we return to love. Return to one. It's so glorious outside. The colors every moment coming more and more green, more and more red. Truly astonishing. How can
can we not feel 